We have a sober service today, and it's because we are dealing with and are moving into a very important part of Scripture that teaches us how we, as believers in the one true God, followers of Christ, are to live in a world, in a culture, under a government that is completely godless. Godless in the sense of not only recognizing God, they don't recognize God, nor His existence even, nor His authority. Therefore, they have no regard for His ways. One of the worst things that can happen to someone, as we saw in the psalm a couple of weeks ago, is to be under the mercy or under the, under the judgment or the control of someone that doesn't know the ways of God. There's no appeal. They have no conscience in that regard. And that's what's happened to God's people. They have been in their kingdom, the theocratic kingdom, which God established them as a nation at Sinai with Moses. Several hundred years later, he had established them with a kingdom with David and Solomon. And they've had this wonderful arrangement of having their own sovereign nation, having that nation be the dominant nation on the face of the earth. Does any of this sound familiar? And at the same time, watch that nation persist in sin and therefore bring upon itself the promised judgment of God. God promised His people that if they would live in the land according to the covenant, they would live in the land forever. But if they broke the covenant, that He would bring plagues upon them, disasters upon them, and He would eventually drive them out of the land and He would destroy the kingdom that had been established. Those were warnings that God gave the people through 400 years of prophecy. The prophet Habakkuk said over in his messages over a hundred years before the events that we talk about this morning, the Lord told him, said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were the southern region of what we know as Babylonia, a huge region. And eventually the Chaldeans rose to power and we don't have time for a historical sketch of how that came about, but he goes all the way back to almost 23 centuries before Christ with the rise of Sargon in the city of Nineveh and Assyria and the great powers that were began to accumulate them, the descendants of the Tower of Babel and their great pride before the Lord and the, the operations of a number of kings and emperors that came along after them. It finally culminated in the rising and the coalescing of all of this ancient Nimrod power into one particular kingdom, and that's the Babylonian kingdom with King Nebuchadnezzar. And the prophet had said, I raise up the Chaldeans. And God kept His word. In about 125 years, the Chaldeans were raised up. And they were raised up to incredible dictatorial, tyrannical power over all the earth. In fact, when Nabopolassar's son defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish, that sealed it. That eliminated the Egyptian imperial threat. So now we have a situation where the whole world 
of that era is dominated by Babylon. And you don't have to read the Bible very far to begin to get the picture that the whole scope of the work of God is between Babylon and Jerusalem. In fact, while we think about the difficulties of the era, the difficulties of the times, we remember the sweet ending that we read about in Revelation when two great declarations are made. Babylon the great is fallen and Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. Babylon and Jerusalem are in conflict. And we see it in the very first of this text that we have here before us, and that's Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is the story, the beginning of what is known as, in the book of Daniel, as the great indignation. It is that time when God promised His people that if they would not obey Him, and after all of His long-suffering and mercy was exhausted toward them, He finally brought upon them the Babylonian conquest. He had protected them through the Assyrian assault a hundred plus years before, but not now. Now God's wrath is full and He allows the Babylonians... And by the way, God is in control. Our text is going to say, and it's our title, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That, that verse right there says it all. God took Jerusalem, the holy city, the people of God, and handed them over to the godless tyrant, Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. The sovereign God is in control. It was the very prophet that had promised the, ba the Babylonian captivity and how long it would last, that is Jeremiah, that also wrote lamentation as he watched with tear-filled eyes the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of so many into the land of Babylon. Jeremiah is the one that wrote that passage in lamentation. It says the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Every morning there's new mercies. Even Habakkuk had said, when God said, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and I'm going to do this work of judgment, it was, it was, it was Habakkuk who cried out, Oh Lord, in Your wrath, remember mercy. And that's what you're going to see in our Scripture this morning. You're going to see the wrath of God as God gives over. And by the way, if you read your Bible very much, especially Romans chapter 1, that's the way God deals. That's the way God's wrath does. It gives people over. Gives people over to sensuality. Gives people over to an unsound mind. Gives people over to their own ways. People that go astray and will not come back, the Lord backs off and says, go ahead, have it your way. And walking in your own paths, in your own ways, away from God, is the consequence of your sin. And it is the very punishment for your sin as well. So God's people now are in this particular predicament. And it, 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 this is a pivotal place. This is a pivotal place in understanding God's work because now, from now on, God will move more and more toward that which is less temporal and more eternal with His people. Less spatial and more celestial. Less having to do with time 
and more with eternity. Less having to do with that which is, which is shadow and type and more and more to do with that which is real and is fulfillment. In other words, from now on, God's going to deal with His people less and less about the land, the temple, the literal things that you read about all through the Old Testament and will move more and more toward them understanding the great verities of the faith and the magnitude of God Himself and what He's doing and He's in control. So now let's hear the text. Stand, if you would, for the reading of the Word. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In wrath, remember mercy. I want to just mention to you at least one way that we know God operates. When God comes to save His people, to deliver His people, He works consistently with that which He has always promised. Back in Egypt, way back in the days of Jacob, when he and his family went down into Egypt in the famine that was in the land of Israel, they went down into Egypt and there they were going to stay for a while. More than 70 years this time. Quite a few years they were going to stay. One of the things that happened there in the last chapters of the book of Genesis is that God placed a blessing upon His people through Jacob. The old patriarch Jacob, limping because he had been touched on the thigh by the wrestler earlier in his life, leaning on his staff, the supplanter, the deceiver, the one that was the wicked brother of the more wicked brother Esau, Jacob. The Bible says he leaned on his staff and he worshiped God. After all Jacob had been through in his whole life, he had finally come to see God 
in all of life's events and the hand of God and the providence of God. And one of the things he did is he blessed each of his sons all the way from the oldest to the least, Benjamin, the baby. He blessed them all and said some kind of word of prophecy over them. It's a fascinating read. One of the things he said when he came to bless Judah, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from Israel. What in the world did that mean at the time? Here was Judah, one of the characters of the brothers. One of the sons of Leah. He was in that first four group along with Simeon and Levi and Reuben. Judah was in that that first four group of boys that came from Leah. They were full brothers and they hung together their whole life. But what did he mean when he took Judah and said, the scepter, the kingly rule, the leadership of my people shall not depart from Judah. Well, this is exactly a prophecy how God is going to operate all through time and into eternity with Judah being the Savior, the ruler, the lawgiver, the bearer of the scepter, the executor of the Word of God. God's vice-regent on earth will be Judah. And you say, well, we, we see that. We see the prominence in the tribe of Judah when we get to David. Because David was of the tribe of Judah. And we see that that was the royal tribe. It was not the tribe of Benjamin, of which Saul was a member, but it was the tribe of Judah. But let me tell you, it happened late before that. Let me read you just an interesting passage of Scripture. Back in Judges chapter 1, when when they've come through the conquest, and now they're settling into the land, and they begin to conquer, and, and, and the land has been divided, and a portion, the land of Canaan, has been apportioned to all the people. Right here in the book of Judges, at the very first begin, of the beginning of the book, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The people said, Who, Who's going to lead us? Who's going to bear the scepter? Who's going to be the, the dominant one that's going to enable us to conquer these people and to inhabit this land as God has promised? Verse 2, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. I preached a whole sermon years ago on that, that verse right there. Judah shall go up. And we went way beyond talking about the old patriarch Judah and finally got to the real son of Judah. Not David, but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shall go up. That's who's going to save His people. And then you read the rest of the, the verse and I'll just, the rest of the chapter there and I'll just hit some highlights. The Lord said, I've given the land into His hand into Judah's hand. In verse 4, Then Judah went up and the Lord gave him the Canaanites. It's interesting, the Lord gave. That's the same language that we see in Daniel where God gave Jerusalem and the king there over into the hands of the Babylonian king. And the Lord gave him the Canaanites and the Perizzites into his hand. Verse 8, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites. Verse 11, And there the men of Judah went against the inhabitants of Debir. And it tells the story about something that happened there. Verse 17, And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited the land and devoted it to 
destruction. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Don't forget that. God's going to work through Judah. And he's never going to change his mind. So when we come to this next great pivotal point, 400 plus years later, well, actually about 700 years after Joshua, we come to this, this time. Look what it says in our text. It says, they were of the tribe of Judah. Verse 6, these four young men that we look at this morning were of the tribe of Judah. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, the four, they had been selected out of the king's royal family because they were young men of enormous potential. So what we probably see here in the in this particular episode is the Lord is sending ahead select people whose job it is is to protect and to represent and to be an example and to be a mediator for God's people in this pagan land of Babylon. Just like God had sent Joseph ahead back in the day. Joseph was sold into slavery and lived his life there so that he could then save and rescue his brothers when they came down into the, into the land. God's operational um, um, methods are, are, are consistent. And the more we see how our God operates and how our God works, then the more we fall on our face and worship Him because we see He is in absolute control of everything. And we see that in the life of these young men. Let me mention a couple things about the text. These men were selected, they were probably in their teens, maybe 15, 14, 15, 16, maybe on up to about 18 or 19, but they were selected because of, you see the criterion that's set out there, they were of the royal family, they were nobility, they were youths without blemish. Boy, there's an interesting character, a youth without blemish. <laughs> if you raise teenagers, you, you're looking for that person. Youth without blemish, a good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. These were men, young men, who had been well prepared in the royal court. They had been sons of David. They were descendants of David, and they were trained in the wisdom of Solomon. In the Proverbs. That's what the book of Proverbs, by the way, is. It is a book of royal wisdom. It's the father teaching the son, first of all in the royal household, but in every household in Israel, it's the father teaching the son the ways of God and the ways he, are, he is to live. And Jesus was raised according to the Proverbs because he was a royal son of David. That's what that little verse in Luke says, where he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's a direct quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. To tell you that's how Jesus was raised. He was raised as a Proverbs youth. My son. They were, they, were, they were those kind of young men. God had trained and preserved them and brought them to that point, but that was their real 
training, their real education, their real grounding is that which they received in the royal court studying the scriptures and the Proverbs and being raised to be young men of this character. But Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be liaisons and ambassadors and men who could, who could interact with the culture. But the main thing he needed them to do was to learn the Babylonian culture. And it says here that they were put in school for three years. It's interesting, it's three years. That's the length of time we give a seminary education. <laughs> That's the time the Lord trained His disciples was for three years. And uh, I think that that text doesn't say it. This is, to- this is totally me. This is not one ounce of Bible in this right here. I'll let you know when I'm getting back to Bible teaching. But I believe the three years represents not just three calendar years, but the three levels of learning. There are three levels of learning pedagogically. There's an introductory level. There's learning vocabulary. There's learning basic concepts. There's learning foundational truths. These are the days for primers. These are the days for surveys and overviews. Then there's a second layer of learning where details are added in and a massive amount of information fills in the gaps and builds upon the foundation of the first layer or the first year, the first phase of learning. Then there is the third, and the third is that of practical wisdom. It's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And I, and I believe that's kind of the way learning is. And, and, and the Babylonians had an incredible, it says that they were to learn the, the Babylonian language and literature. And they had a pretty good literature there. Uh, we found over 10,000 significant documents from this era of the Babylonian empire during excavations. But it started back around 1700 BC, 200 years before Moses with the code of Hammurabi, the first legal code that we have any really grasp of. That was Babylonian. And the literature extends, the literature extends into all manner of science and philosophy and especially religion. Where the Babylonians are religious people, they had all of the gods represented with the lion and the bull and the serpent. And they, the gods were, of course, uh, Baal and, uh, and uh, Dagon and all the others that came out of the, the, the coastal regions over into Babylon. Babylon was a, was a hodgepodge of religion. In fact, it was the religious center of the world. That's where the Tower of Babel had been. And excavators have found countless ziggurats, towers, pyramids, temple pyramids, and worship places all over that region around Babylon. And that's what these young men were to learn. They were to learn all this stuff. And the reason they were to learn it was in order that they might be useful to the king, but more importantly, that they may be useful to the king of kings. It's interesting how God turns the heart of the king in the direction he wants him to go. So here's Nebuchadnezzar having these young men prepared for the service in his court, when in actually their great service is going to be in the greater court of the king of kings. And so they're, they're learning the language, they're getting themselves ready, and then we'll continue this study next week about uh, what happened here. But basically they were instructed uh, what they could do, and they were privileged. They were given the king's diet and the king's uh, wine, In other words, they were in the land of swine and wine. And the question is, how do you keep kosher? How do you keep according to God's dietary laws in a pagan land? In in a land where, where nutrition 
and science and true, natural, God-given, created order ways toward health are abandoned and are ignored and are even taught against? How do you just maintain your basic health in a tyranny that will force you to do things that you think is deleterious to your health and God's Word perhaps forbids? How do you maintain that in a land? So here they are in this, in this uh, school to learn more about pagan culture. And by the way, that's what God's people need to do. We need to know more about the pagans than they know about themselves. We need to see through their understanding, their logic. We need to understand their gods, what they actually serve, what they actually bow down to. And it's the same old gods that all the pantheons of the ancient pagans had. It's pleasure, it's sexuality, it's sensuality, it's monetary, it's money. It's just those things that, that consume our appetite and give us every gratification. We need to know pagan culture. But the main thing they'll say, and I'll mention this as we close, is they were there to keep a God-centered worldview. A God-centered worldview. Because in that culture of Babylon, they were going to lose all perspective on God. If there ever was a place where you can forget God, it's in a place where your heart and mind has been filled with all other kinds of notions, concepts, constructs, and things that you've been taught by the culture, and it's easy to forget what God has taught. So what they want to do is to keep this God-centered worldview in the middle of this pagan culture. And let me just briefly tell you what they are. One of them is they need to understand and continue to remember that God created the heavens and the earth. They'll pick up all kinds of notions as to who uh, was involved in origins from the Babylonian culture, what pagan god did this or that. But they need to remember that the Lord God of heaven and earth, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, is the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Then they need to remember that God created man in His image as part of the Christian worldview, or the biblical worldview, we'll say at this point. It is a, it is a viewpoint that has the right understanding of man. If, you're not, if you don't understand the nature of the human, then you're liable to treat the human just any old way. And that's what pagan cultures do. They have a devalued view of human life. If all we are is some kind of piece of protoplasm that crawled up out of the primordial marsh, and then we've got no more value than that, then you can pretty well do anything you want to to that person. You can put them anywhere you want to. You can feed them anything you want to. You can make them do anything you want them to do. And you can vaccinate them any way you want to vaccinate them. You can do whatever you want to to that piece of mush. But if that's someone created in the image of God with the integrity and the remaining values and attributes that God placed upon it that He could reflect the glory of God, you need to deal with that person a little bit differently. And persons need to deal with one another a little differently. And that's what, what uh, the culture was going to push upon them was a different view of humanity. The other thing you need to remember is time and history is part of God's plan. God created time just as sure as He created the earth. History is God's story. It is His story. 
And there's purpose to history. And history has a linear course. Uh, it has a time-space continuum that goes from a beginning, a creation, a start, all the way through a continuation which has purpose. And God is in control of that purpose and is working with that purpose. And as we've seen before, God works in terms of centuries and millennia, not within terms of just one day's clock cycle. Prayers are answered late. Habakkuk's prayer was answered 125 years later. Over and over and over, we see God works that. That's a difficult perspective to have because we have a worldly perspective. And then, most importantly, there's a consummation. History is headed to a point. There will be a time, a time when time will end and eternity will begin. And that's a biblical worldview. They need to understand that. And then that God is sovereign over all of His creation. And then finally, let me say this one thing. They were assigned new names. Uh, by the way, Daniel's name was a name of a form of one of the gods. In other words, the king of Babylon, the pagan king, the godless king, put his identity, his name on these boys. We cannot let the culture rename us. We cannot find our identity in their categories and in their way of thinking. We can't get under their thought processes. We must continually to remain in God's universe, thinking God's thoughts after Him and maintaining the identity that God gives to us.